We're doing a series right now, and uh, the, the premise of it is that a local church should feel like heaven on earth. I know that's a bold claim, so let's read the text, we'll pray, and we'll get to work. This is Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It reads like this, they, they, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and a fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, we're asking that you, by your spirit, through that word, would speak. As we consider the kind of church that we want to be, we want nothing more than to be a church that is pleasing to you. So show us what that looks like, please. We pray in your name. Amen. So if the local church is meant to be a preview of the coming attraction of heaven, what do you suppose that would look like? I would argue that one of the main features then would be the feature of worship. A church that is doing what God wants it to do would be a church that is full of worship to him. In fact, that's how the end of the Bible closes it out. It tells us that, uh, it gives us a picture into the throne room itself in Revelation chapter 5. It gives us a bunch of different episodes throughout the book, but in Revelation chapter 5 specifically, we peer in and we see that there is a lamb that has been slain at the very center of it all. It's metaphorical, speaking of Jesus Christ himself, the lamb that was slain to take away the sins of the world. And he's there, and he's there being worshipped. There are four creatures and 24 elders, and they're all expressing their adoration for him and what he's done. Then it pans out a little bit, and we find out that there are thousands upon thousands of angels all joining in the chorus of worship and adoration of the lamb that was slain. Zooms out just a little bit further, and it shows us all of creation. Every aspect of creation, worshiping him. So if we think about a church, a local church, being an embodiment of heaven on earth, one of the things that should be unsurprising to us is that it would be a place full of worship. And if that's where we're going, then I want to look at it at the ground level in Acts chapter 2, because I think Acts 2 shows us here's what it looks like in real time. Here's what it would look like if a people were committed to worshiping God, and it shows us the nitty-gritty details of the things that they engaged in. So we'll look at it under three headings, meaning, motivation, and manner. Meaning, what is worship? We have to unpack that. We have to think through, what do we mean when we say that? When you talk about a church worshiping, what, what do you mean exactly? Is it a kind of music? Is it a certain particular song, what, what is worship? The second thing we'll look at is motivation, answering the question, why did they do this? Like, why did they reorient their lives around life in the church? And then finally, manner, we're going to ask and answer the question, what does it look like exactly? What are the things that they were doing? So let's get to work. First off, meaning. We need to define what worship is. Now, if you look at our paragraph and you look at... Uh, 
throughout that, the course of that short little paragraph, you find this theme emerging, but it's expressed in different ways. And we could simply put it like this. The, the early church was committed to worshiping God. They were committed to acknowledging what God has done and expressing their worship to him in a variety of different ways. So in verse 42, we get this freighted term called devotion. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. They were devoted. That's a worship term. Verse 43 tells us they were filled with awe. It's another worship term. They, they were mesmerized by what God was doing in and through the midst of that community. Verse 44, they're together. That's an aspect of being a part of the church and worshiping. It wasn't just these isolated individuals kind of off doing their own thing. There was a togetherness to it. And verse 46, we're told that they were meeting continually in the temple courts, and so they were gathering together for the sake of worship, we might say. And then in verse 46, we're told that they were worshiping in their homes, that they were breaking bread together. And I think that that includes a meal, but as you notice in this paragraph, there's more to breaking bread than just sharing a meal. I think they're sharing communion. I think they're remembering the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're worshiping him in their homes. And then finally, it tells us in verse 47, that with glad and sincere hearts, they're praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So worship just runs throughout this little paragraph here. And when we begin to think through, okay, why, why does worship matter so much? Why is this such a key feature of the early church? Well, one of the reasons why, as an, as an author has put it, Harold Best, he wrote a book called Unceasing Worshippers. And his argument is, this is how we're made. God built us and we are hardwired to worship. In fact, we can't even help it. It's just a part of our operating system. We're constantly worshiping. And so Harold Best says, the issue then is not whether or not somebody worships, it's what they worship. So we're all constantly devoting ourselves to certain things. And Harold Best is saying what we ought to be doing, according to the Bible, is devoting ourselves to God. But the truth is, often we are worshiping, worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator God, Romans chapter 1. So we worship. In fact, the, the church has historically thought about this and said this is one of the main reasons why we exist. The Westminster Divines uh, wrote some different documents, a confession of faith. They wrote a thing called a catechism, which is a teaching device. So you've got a question and then you've got a corresponding answer. And you teach people to memorize both so that they can recite it back. And, the, and by doing so, they're being catechized with accurate Bible teaching. When the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question, you've heard, I'm sure you've heard this before, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? So it's really that question, like, why do we exist? Why are we here? What are we supposed to do? What is the purpose of God creating humanity in the first place? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think that's right on. I think the reason why God made us and made us as we are, is so that we might worship. And we need to become a people who worship God and God alone. Well, the, you can think through it like this as well. When the Lord was pressed on what the most important command was, what did he say? Love the Lord your God. Worship him. Love his creation, the people that he's made. Or you think about the Ten Commandments where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and 
God writes on tablets of stone with his own finger the things that he wants his people to know. This is what it's like to live. This is the testimony of what it's like to live in relationship with the living God. And he writes down on these tablets of stone, these 10 commandments. And what are the first two? What do they have to do with? Worship. It's telling us how we ought to worship. So if we consider the church and we consider ourselves as individual believers within the church, one of the things that should feel very obvious is we are supposed to worship God. We are supposed to be devoted to him and expressing how grateful we are for what he has done for us. John Piper puts it like this when he's talking about missions and he's thinking about missions as an activity of the church. And, and he's, this is in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And his very first paragraph Right there on the front end, he says it like this. Missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, the reason why we would ever send somebody to a remote place so that they might communicate the gospel. And by the way, if you do cross-cultural missions, there's a good chance that you spend two to five years in language school, learning how to communicate in the native tongue of the people you feel assigned to reach with the good news of the gospel. Here's the reason why. You want them to be able to understand what you say when you tell them the message of Christ crucified and risen. So why on earth would we invest so much time and energy and money in sending people to faraway places to tell them the message of Christ? Here's the reason why. Piper, I think, gets it exactly right. It's so that they might have an opportunity to hear the news of salvation, respond in faith, and join us in worshiping the Lamb that was slain. Missions exist because worship doesn't. We, worship isn't happening there yet, so we're going to go there with that purpose in mind. So the church, then, is a place where worship ought to happen. And in fact, if we're not worshiping, then what are we even doing? Right? If we don't consider how to come together and express gratitude to God, then what are we even doing? Well, I still haven't answered the question of what is worship, but I think we get at it in verse 42 with that term there of devotion. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Devotion, in my mind, is a worship term. It's telling us the things that really matter. It's letting us know, here's what I have aligned my life to. I'm devoted to this. They're committing themselves to participation in the life of the church for the sake of worship of God. So here's my question for each of us. What are we devoted to? Because not all worship is aimed at the right target, one of the things the Bible repeatedly warns us of is false worship, or what the Bible calls idolatry. It's taking something other than God and putting it on the throne of our hearts and saying, this is what really matters. This is what gets my engine going. This is what I really deeply care about. What are the things that we are devoted to? One of the diagnostic questions that we might ask is, if you are sitting there and you're daydreaming, and you've got some white space just to think, what is it that your mind gravitates to? What is it that you naturally just go, this, this is what gets me super pumped? Because oftentimes God is trying to realign us to recognize we are created to worship and serve him, but too often we are worshiping and serving something other than him. So what are you devoted to? What are you devoted to? Now here in our text, we find that these people are radically devoted to God and his ways. We see it showing up in the way that they have totally changed their lifestyle 
to accommodate spending time in God's church expressing gratitude to God. So secondly, let's look at that. Motivation. Why did this happen? Like, what, what happened to this group of people that changed them so dramatically? What prompted them to engage in this high level of devotion and worship? Well, well the simple answer is they're responding to a work of God. So I just want you to, if you've got a Bible and you can look up, you can see what's going on here in, in the chapter uh, and, and in chapter 1 as well. What you have is a bunch of, I would call them good people. I would call them religious people. People who are committed, they, they believe in God. They're willing to kind of participate in different religious activities. Think of it like this. People who go to church on Christmas and Easter and other, you know, seemingly important times of the year, but they're not really devoted. They're just, they're just kind of going with the flow. And uh, they're just kind of doing their thing. Well, that's what we find in Acts chapters 1 and 2. You find some people, good people, I would say, religious people. They believe in God. And they're going about their kind of ordinary activity. And all of a sudden, something happens to them that changes them. Okay. So they have two holidays on the calendar. They both show up in, in, in our text here. The first one is the day of Pentecost. It's the holiday where they go to the holy city and they... You know, they get a lamb and they have that lamb slain and it's a reminder of God's saving work from hundreds and hundreds of years previous. The Day of Atonement. It's something that is very significant in the Jewish culture and on their calendar. They would would do that. So this people, they participated in that. And then 50 days later, there's another religious ceremony and this one's called Pentecost. It's 50 days after the Day of Atonement and it is the day, it's called the Feast of Weeks. Or like Seven weeks later, 50 days later, they have this other ceremony. And it's also called the Feast of, of Harvest because they're bringing in the grain harvest and they're bring, bringing the first fruits in. But something happened that year that changed both of those days. Something happened that was so profound that all of a sudden this group of people who maybe previously were just kind of nominally interested in the things of God, all of a sudden it's all ramped up. They're, they're in they kind of look insane all of a sudden. What happened? Well, on the Day of Atonement, there was this individual called Jesus of Nazareth, and he was executed. He was taken outside the camp, and he was placed on a cross, and he bled and died there. And then he came back from the dead. And then 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the believer, you know, people are gathering together again, and this time, the Holy Spirit shows up in a profound way and anoints this group of followers of Christ in a different way. All of a sudden, they're speaking different languages, and everyone's like, well, they never learned these languages. How are they doing this? And a crowd shows up, and Peter begins preaching a sermon. He's got a crowd now. A bunch of people are like, what on earth is going on here? And he starts to preach, and he's connecting the dots between the promises of God in Scripture and the person of Jesus Christ. He shows them Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and he is the suffering servant and he bled and died at Calvary, but he's not dead. Remember how the Bible says that the Lord will not let his Holy One see decay. He's alive right now. And now the crowd, this is not like manipulation. This is not, an, it's an excellent sermon for sure, but it's not on account of Peter's giftedness here. 
The Holy Spirit is bringing about conviction of sin. You've got this huge crowd of people, and they're all beginning to think through, are you kidding me? The, the Lord of glory just died, and we were participants in that. We treated him with disregard. They were cut to the core. In fact, that's how it describes it there. They were convicted of sin, and they cry out, what do we do? What do we do? We have disregarded the Lord of glory. And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you, your children, and all who are far off, for all who call on the Lord our God. He, he tells us that what they needed to do in that moment was to place their faith in Christ. And that's exactly what they do. And in fact, we're told that 3,000 were added to their number that day, that they, were, they accepted the message, they believed in Christ, they were baptized and added to the, to the church that day. So here's what happened then. The motivation for this new life of worship was they experienced salvation. They went from knowing something about God, from showing up a couple times when it's convenient, to all of a sudden, they become what the Bible calls a new creation. Remade by faith in the image of Christ himself. They place their faith in him. They experience salvation. They are radically new. They're different. So now, going back to life as normal is no longer appropriate. Now, what they do is they align their existence to him, to the king, to the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. So, listen, when that transformation happens, it's dramatic. And in fact, as people make that transition, it, it looks weird to an outsider. Let's just be honest about it. When, they, when somebody who b- believes in God but isn't devoted to him, and they look at some of us and they go, wait a minute, you're telling me you go to church almost every week or every week you can? That's weird. Like, why would you do that? Don't you ever just want to sleep in or like go fishing or do something different? Like, why would you go to church? And then they go, wait, 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 wait. You tell me you read your Bible? Like, like you read the Bible and you do that almost every day? That's weird. What are you, a weirdo? And then like you start looking at what devotion actually plays out as and people start looking at that and they're like, this is odd. Like, I don't get it. I do not get why you are so committed to these different things. Well, the reason why is somebody who has experienced salvation, we can't help it. When we experience the goodness of God and the saving work of Jesus Christ, we just can't help it. Like all of a sudden, our, our priorities have changed. We just want to do whatever he wants us to do. And we're going we're gonna to align our lives to him. So yes, we're going to gather with the people of God. And yes, we're going to open the scriptures because they tell us about him. And yes, we're going to do all these different things. We're going to pray and, and, and commit ourselves to a community of believers. And we're going to spend time together and all these different things because we can't help it. The people of God are people who have been saved. And that then makes us into worshipers. That's our motivation. We have experienced the saving work of God. And then you begin to look at not only are we individually saved, now we also have this community experience that's beautiful as well. Look again at the paragraph. It says, everyone was filled with awe 
at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So there's this experience within that community now where you're going, this is wild. Like being a part of this is incredible. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So now all of a sudden, the experience of church is different. You're not, you're not just you know, a participant who shows up. All of a sudden, life in the church looks different. When there are needs, we're, we're, people are trying to meet those needs with you and for you. It's different. The experience of the church is different. Every day they're meeting together in temple courts, breaking bread in homes and eating together with glad and sincere hearts. Can you imagine that? Opening your table one to another and sharing together in life with God and praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and God is adding to the number those who are being saved. So one of the reasons why we worship is we've experienced salvation. Another reason is we start to do life together and we actually like it. And it's fun, and it's beautiful, and it's compelling. Here's another reason as well. In verse 43, it tells us everyone was filled with awe. Now, that's an interesting word, and I, I get why they translated it that way. But the, in the original, it's, it's fear. They were together, and they were experiencing what the Bible calls fear of the Lord. So it's not just like, wow, this is cool. Um, my kids don't drink a lot of soda, so every once in a while we'll be like, okay, here's a Sprite or a 7-Up, and Harrison will take a drink, and his eyes will go all big. He's like, whoa, right? Like sugar water with fizz, amazing. It's not that kind of amazement where you're like, wow, this is pretty neat. It's more like, this is incredible. I have no business being here. I don't know how I got here, but I was invited It's more like Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah finds himself in in the presence of God. He sees the temple. He sees the Lord on the throne. He sees the train of the robe filling the temple. And he responds like this, I'm toast. Like, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm ruined. I should not be in the presence of a holy God. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory of God. That's, that's freighted in that word fear. The reason why the believers were worshiping was because they were experiencing the presence of God. And it's not some casual thing where you're like, oh yeah, God's here, no biggie. No, God is here. And you go, I don't even think I should be here, but I was invited. This is, this is too much. They were worshiping because of their experience of salvation, their experience within community, and their fear of the Lord. Well, finally, let's look at the manner. What are the things that they did as believers? What are the things that they participated in in their worship of the Lord? What, what did their devotion look like? Now, what I'm talking about here, what are the, what are the specific activities of the church? And what I want to do before we look at the, the details is I want to remind you of the order here. It make, It's purposeful. If you get the motivation right, then the manner that you worship, that's up for grabs. If you get the motivation right, then you can worship in all, all manner of things. You can, you can do all kinds of different things in a way that's appropriate. But if you flip them, you don't have the same experience. So if you have the right motivation, you could be like the disciples in the, in the garden before the arrest of the Lord, and it could be a small group of you singing hymns. No instruments, no, no 
you know, microphone, no amplification, just a group of you together, and you just start singing hymns in that environment. Or you could be like Paul and Silas in prison after being beaten for their faith in Christ. And what did they do at about midnight? They started praying and singing. They worshiped. That was their, the manner that they were expressing their devotion. They had the motivation, so the way that they worshiped, it could happen in any number of places. If you flip it around, though, again, you don't get the same results. If you try to say, what we really need to be about is this particular form of worship, what you find happening is what's called worship wars, where because of your preferences, you say, this is what I think, and if you don't agree with me, then we're not going to share fellowship. Like if we're going to do, we're going to do the music that I like, we're going to do the songs that I like, we're going to do the volume that I like, we're going to do everything that I like. But if you don't do that, then we've got problems. And I, and I will, churches divide over this and people get all huffy and puffy. Jeff was telling me stories about a previous church that he led worship in. And if you change the order of the hymns, you're in trouble, right? The elders are calling you that night. That's why we need the motivation. We need to get that right so that we would have all kinds of freedom when it comes to the manner in which we worship. So, so once the motivation is there, we, we have a new set of criteria to think through a worship service. We can think through not the music that I like, but what's the music that's going to help other people worship? And what's the music and the lyrics that are going to help people from the community come in and, and have it be accessible to them? So all of a sudden, it looks very, very different. Well, let me point out a couple different things that show up in the text. The, the, these are basic. I've been saying them week by week, but two things stand out. On the one hand, one of the ways in which they worship is they got together in a large group setting, what we might call our Sunday morning experience. They gathered together in the temple courts, in the bigger venues with a lot of people. That is an important feature of worshiping as the church. Another thing that they did, however, was they got together in smaller venues too. They, they went into each other's homes and they continued to worship, sharing communion, sharing meals, sharing life together. So when we think through what does it look like for Park City Church to feel like heaven on earth, we want both. We want to have a Sunday morning experience that you feel committed to, that you feel like this is important because we all come together and we share this one experience but then we also go away from here and we go into each other's homes and we share meals and we continue to worship and we pray for one another and there's that more intimate and smaller setting as well. Now we need both. And we need both because God is concerned with the worship experience of encountering him and his presence that is pretty unique to the gathered people of God. But he also wants us to learn how to worship with the entirety of our lives, meaning we go away from the gathering and we're still worshiping. So we're doing yard work and we're worshiping. We're going to work on Monday morning and that's worship. And we're doing all these other things that the Bible describes as worship as a way of life. So we need the large group gathering and we need the small group gathering because that's how we're going to help people do both of these different things. Now, I have noticed pastoring students, and adults for a long, long time now, I have noticed that there is typically an emphasis on one or the other. So in the life of most believers, people get excited about one or the other. So if you do that, I think it gets deformed pretty quick. 
So if you make worship about the Sunday event only, here's what, here's what happens. You, you create an environment. It's great. You put a lot of time and energy into it. It's beautiful. The music is done with excellence. People feel compelled. They you know, raise their hands. They're demonstrative in the way that they worship. But the problem is, if that is the only place that a Christian is worshiping, it becomes very hypocritical very fast. So here's how it played out in student ministry. I imagine it's the same with some of you. If, if somebody comes in here and they watch our worship service and they see you get really, really excited about worship, and then they go to work with you, and they see something entirely different, and they see a grump, they see you know, somebody who's unproductive, they start to go, wait a minute, what's the problem here? Like, how is it that you could go to church and look a certain way, but then in real life, that's not the case at all. That's hypocritical. The opposite, though, is also troubling, where people get so excited about worship as a way of life only that they start to look at us and go, these people are slowing me down. I don't need them. I can do this on my own. I can worship without the large group gathering because honestly, I don't like the music. I don't like how stoic some of you guys are. I don't like the, you know, there's a lot of things about the gathering that I just don't like. So I would be better off if I just go it alone and then I can express my worship how I want to. Now, the problem with that one is it's full of self-righteousness. It's not, it's not exactly what God wants for your worship. Or, yeah, I, I get it that it would be easier to do that for sure. But one of the problems with going it alone is it becomes a platform for your own self-righteousness. And honestly, that's a harder one to treat. Because from the outside appearance, it looks very holy. You, you look very devoted. So what do we need? Both. We need a commitment to the large group gathering, to coming together on a Sunday morning, to looking one another in the eye, to praying over each other, to asking questions and just doing life in this close proximity. But then we're also in a group of over 100 people. And some of you don't even know each other, but that's also exciting. It's like, this is cool. We're all worshiping God with one voice in one accord. And we need this. This this is life-giving. This builds us up. And then we go away from here and we say, okay, well now worship doesn't end at 11.30. How can I continue worshiping? How can I open my life up with other believers and share meals together and break bread and do all these other beautiful things together. That's what we're after as a church. I'm not trying to hide this at all. This is a part of what we're aiming at. And it is very disruptive. We talk about this all the time. We want to hijack your life. Like I know you kind of got a plan, but we're going to try to disrupt that plan. We're going to try to get you so devoted to the things of God that you would love being here with each other And then you'd go away and you'd live life on mission. And by doing that, lots of people are going to see the beauty of Christianity, both by coming with you to this environment and they go, whoa, something is different here. The Lord is here. But also they might go to your table and they might share a meal with you and with your family or with other people in your neighborhood. And they might also say, whoa, 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 the Lord is here. I don't get it. And they might come to know Jesus in a saving way and join in the worship that we get to participate in week by week and day by day and moment by moment. That's what we're after. So I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to invite the team to come. But let's ask that God would make us heaven on earth. 
Lord, we are so very, very grateful for the high calling that you've given us as a local assembly. The body of Christ in the state line area. Lord, we, we want to do a good job of being the living embodiment of what's going on in heaven right now. Angels and elders and creatures and all of creation bowing down in adoration to the lamb that was slain to take away the sins of the world. Help us, Lord, to express that with song and music and worship. And then, Lord, as we depart, as we go away from here, Lord, I pray that, the, that there would be an encore. And it wouldn't be us coming right back in here, but it would be us living out a worship song away from here, living in a way that beautifully commends our Savior to other people. And all of this, Lord, this is too much. We're not going to plan this. We're not going to strategize. We're not going to pull this off in our own strength. It's only by your spirit that you're going to have your way with your people. So Lord, we come open-handed. We come ready for you to do your work in and through us. And we ask, Lord, we appeal to you. Would you please make us this kind of church for your glory? Amen.